Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... The strategy and intent of supporting indigenous people in rural, remote and regional Australia in particular, having home ownership is an excellent approach. Advocates welcome the federal government's plan to expand home ownership for First Nations communities. We have all the details. Also, a new research found out more characteristics of an Australian native mammal. And later today... Fishing is the single biggest challenge for sharks and rays face across the world. In and amongst that, yeah, you do have... Um, habitat destruction. New research has found we've killed 18 million sharks a year. How can we preserve the species? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We are on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, Australian families living in poverty are at greater risk of health implications due to the rising cost pressures and energy affordability. The federal government recently announced a dollar-for-dollar funding initiative to upgrade social housing and increase access to solar power for 30,000 homes. Advocates welcome the decision, but say this is not enough to protect families living in poverty from the Australian sun this summer. National Radio News reporter Georgia Fisher asks CEO of Parents for Climate Change Nick Setten how this initiative will support families. Look, it's a great step forward because we're going to see upgrades to some of the, you could say, um, worst quality housing uh, when it comes to energy efficiency and the costs related to you know, keeping those houses cool or warm at different times of the year. This is particularly relevant for social housing, but also for rentals and apartments that might not have access to solar because it's just not simple to do so. And we're really excited to see this step in New South Wales. We'd like to see it expanded to include all vulnerable housing, particularly those houses that are most vulnerable to heat waves and the quite dangerous effects of heat on people's health. Parents of Climate Change have welcomed the funding, but what recommendations do you have for the federal government to increase this support um, for Australian housing and those living in poverty, especially when they're dealing with heat this summer? Look, there's a lot of social housing, over 400,000 social homes, social housing homes in Australia, and this step forward, the first 24,000 in New South Wales, is a good step forward, but we really need to make sure that all homes are safe from the heat and that all homes can be affordable to live in when it comes to keeping them cool and using energy and and just having a good quality of life. And that's something that a lot of people, unfortunately, are locked out of because either they don't own their home or their home uh, might be part of an apartment complex or they just simply don't have the cash because they are at a different income level. And that's not something that is really acceptable going into a hotter and more extreme climate future. We know that heat has a very dangerous impact on people's health and also particularly vulnerable groups like older people and children. And we need to make sure those people are safe in these homes. So the least we can do is make sure that we're doing something to make that energy super affordable with things like solar and getting them you know, a decent amount of energy efficiency out of their homes so that when they cool it down, it's not going straight out the roof. 
so we're obviously in a cost of living crisis. How are we seeing these families in poverty respond to the rising weather conditions? So how are they cost saving? Are they then, you know, limiting that, that, um, that cooling, turning things off like air conditioners, etc.? Yes, they are. Like we, we produced a report recently, a research review called Hot House Australia, and in that we found that, you know, there are a lot of uh, Australians who are really having to adapt to rising energy costs. Unfortunately, not all of them can afford to cool their home at all. In fact, one in five Australians can't. And around three out of four families in lower income households are cutting back on the use of fans and air conditioners and things like that due to these cost pressures already. And that's fine up until a point because at a certain point, a heat wave can last for a long time and be a very high temperature. And that can have a severe impact on people's health, their mental health, their well-being, their work or in, in their education especially in the case of young people. I was just going to touch on your latest report, Whole House Australia. Um, it highlighted the driving risks and effects that increased um, heat can have on children. I know you just spoke on what those were. Um, I, I guess still kind of chatted, talking on those recommendations for the federal government, especially when we're talking about children, I guess, um, with those effects of heat and affecting health and education. Um, how, what, are, what is um, Parents for Climate Change, I guess, recommendation or a sort of national plan for the government um, to, to intervene in this? Yeah, we don't have a national coordinated strategy for heat, and I think that's something that's sorely lacking. Um, our report uh, identifies a lot of risks when it comes to particularly children who just have less ability to cool down. They're smaller, for a start, and they don't have all of the um, decision-making power to uh, keep their environments cool. Now, we've all heard about the danger of hot cars, but hot houses, hot classrooms, these are important too, and they have um, effects on people's um, ability to concentrate and learn, but also on their health. It can lead to things like heat stroke and heat stress, but also asthma and other resp respiratory illnesses and cardiovascular disease, and in some extreme cases, even death. Unfortunately, heat waves are the number one killer um, greater than all other extreme weather events put together. Now, this is painting the picture that we need a national plan and we need to make sure that all homes are safe from heat. And that means keeping them cool with affordable energy and efficient homes. And that's pretty simple. It's a sort of three-step process. Make sure that the home is uh, well insulated, make sure that they can cool it down with appropriate air conditioning and make sure that people can afford it with things like solar panels to supplement that energy use. CEO of Parents for Climate Change, Nick Setonde, ending the report by National Radio News, Georgia Fisher. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. The federal government has announced a plan to increase First Nations home ownership in remote indigenous communities. The National Rural Health Alliance has welcomed the decision and believes this plan is a key step towards improving the overall health and well-being of First Nations peoples. The Wire's Joel Jesudasen, as chief executive of the National Rural Health Alliance, Susie Tegan, her thoughts about the government's plan. The strategy and intent of supporting Indigenous people in rural, remote and regional Australia in particular, having home ownership, is an excellent approach. It will be of great benefit for the Aboriginal communities and it not only builds generational wealth, but the flow-on effect and the health and well-being of people will improve. 
What is the significance of home ownership to the Aboriginal population especially? It's really more than actually having their own house. It's about financial security, social engagement, well-being and health outcomes. And we currently know that there is overcrowding in Indigenous communities in the housing that exists. If Aboriginal people are able to buy their own house, they would then feel that they have pride, have the status within their community. Well-being in particular is impacted because it provides the and control of their own lives. What are some of the ways that home ownership can improve and support general health and well-being of the First Nations people? The Alliance acknowledges the importance of land and significance of ownership to Indigenous communities. And in addition to that, from an Indigenous perspective, land is not owned by a few, rather it belongs to everybody. And so having their own house adds to belonging to that community to that land and also allows for that spiritual connection to the people and families and the surroundings. And we hope that the latest government plans to increase the possibility of home ownership will ease some of those burdens on this population. And some of the options that the government is currently discussing are things like 99-year leases, which actually makes sense. That means that generally it can be passed across generations. Many communities and many countries in Europe do that. So for example, Austria has considerable amounts of housing which um, from a land title perspective is owned by the state but you can actually buy the house through a lease. And the important thing in this process is that government speak to local communities about the way the purchasing of housing can be facilitated and I'm hoping that if that is possible, that the government actually works from a sustainability point of view where sustainable housing is possibly bought or built, which includes the solar and the water capture and fresh water tanks so that there is a sustainable model for Aboriginal communities to buy into. How will the long-term lease arrangements for home ownership work? Is that the 99-year leases? Yes, it is. But I'm not sure if they've come to a conclusion yet. And I guess the point I'm making is that Aboriginal communities need to be included in the discussions when the actual guidelines and development are developed because if you don't, you'll have the same as what happened in the 1980s. And I can still remember living in Alice Springs and Aboriginal people were brought into Alice Springs. They were given housing and taken in from others. Well, they weren't exactly consulted. How will the Northern Australian Infrastructure Facilities investment be used? Well, that really depends on how the government decides to allocate the funding and longer term, not just one-off strategy, how in the longer term they're willing to look at investment and then renewal and longer term relationships with Aboriginal communities and industry. It really, again, goes back to consultation and then actually doing something about it. It really has to be something that's fairly robust, but also the process has to be acted on fairly quickly. How can individual home ownership benefit the wider communities? Well, it adds economic benefit and social benefit to Aboriginal people, for one, but also emotional security. Home ownership provides the feeling of having control of your own life. It provides you the opportunity to start thinking about other things because that is stable. So you might think further about education, about work. Is there anything else you would like to add? 
The Aboriginal population in Australia makes up a little bit above 3%. We know that the majority of Aboriginal people live in rural, remote and regional Australia. Their health outcome is often a half, if not twice, worse than that of the average Australian and we cannot put up with this difference for much longer. We have a social contract to look after Aboriginal people, not in a condescending or paternalistic way. It's more about giving people the ability to make their own decisions, to have ownership and to be able to look after their own health. That was Chief Executive of the National Rural Health Alliance, Susie Teigen, speaking with The Wires, Joel Jesudasson. Listening to the Wire, Independent Current Affairs on Community and Indigenous Radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Hobart on H Radio, and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. Have you heard or seen an antikinus? An antikinus is a native mammal from Australia and their habitats are located in forests around eastern and northern Australia. But new research has found these mammals could be cannibals, as a researcher found an antikinus dragging a carcass from the same species. I started asking Associate Professor of the School of Biology and Environmental Science from the Queensland University of Technology, Andrew Baker, where we can find these mammals. Well, there are 15 species of antikinuses and they form part of a, a group of animals of which there are about 75 or so species in total called dasyurids or carnivorous marsupials. Antikinuses are distributed in forested areas of eastern Australia, southwestern Australia and northern Australia and in most areas where there are trees and some healthy environment, so sometimes even semi-rural areas or um, forested areas, uh, they can be found. So you led a research about this native mammal. Could you please tell us what the research is on the antikinus and how it started? So uh, I've been working on antikinuses for probably about 15 years. Um, I used to work at the Queensland Museum and my boss uh, there, Steve Van Dyke, was a bit of an antikinus whisperer. He'd done lots of research on them and I asked him one day if there was some projects on taxonomy or describing new species that could be had and he said the antikinuses were a good place to look. So we spent about 10 years looking at that in that group and we found five new species of antikinuses and two of which are threatened. They're actually listed as endangered. So me and my team have basically been trying to describe them, understand them and also work out ways to try to conserve them, especially for those threatened ones. And um, this work came about sort of serendipitously. A colleague um, of ours was just out having a bushwalk in August of 2023 in northeastern New South Wales, and he was there to look at um, plants and various other things, I think, and then just heard a rustle in the bushes up ahead and was surprised to see this little animal pop out and dragging a carcass of another animal which it started to eat. And he wasn't quite sure of the significance of it, but it was a bit weird to see one of these small mammals during the day. So he, he whipped out his camera and took some video. And then later on when we looked at it, we realised that it hadn't really been 
observed in the wild. So it was actually a really significant find. Coming to this topic, I mean, you found in this research that the antichinus could be a cannibal, which is very, very interesting. Is this a common thing for them, you think? Or is it just, you know, an isolated case? Actually, it wouldn't surprise me if it's fairly common, especially just if they stumble across one of these dead bodies by chance. There's probably a lot of dead antichinuses around at certain times of the year because they breed at the same time in any given location. So pretty much it'll be across one to three weeks at the same time every year. And all the males drop dead before they're one year old after the breeding season finishes. So there'd be a lot of bodies. And we've always assumed that maybe something like this could happen. But the issue with seeing it and capturing it on film is that they're only really active at night most of the time. And if they're dying, they're usually sick and in a miserable way because their body just falls to pieces. So they're probably crawling a hole somewhere. So I think this sort of thing probably does go on and this just happens to be the first time we've seen it. So this is what it's called, the semel parity, am I correct? Yes, it's the, it's the once-in-a-lifetime breeding. It's basically they, they breed for one uh, breeding period and then die. So does the antichinus have a role in its environment as such? Um, and if so, what is it and what is important to take care of it? Absolutely. Like everything, it's, it's part of the, the food web and has an important part, but Antichinus mostly eat um, insects and spiders, so occasionally they will eat vertebrates like small birds and lizards and occasionally other mammals and, of course, in this case, each other. But they have an important role to play as part of that food web to help uh, you know, maintain their, their prey, which is insects and spiders, and they're also a part of that balance. What's the future work on this research? Um, well, actually, we're, we're sort of still investigating some um, new species of antichinus. There, there's still something that we need to resolve and and understand better. Um, also, where some of these species occur, we're reasonably sure about a lot of the distributions, but in some cases, we kind of need to understand um, where those distribution boundaries are, um, and particularly the research continues with conservation because. We've got two species on the East Coast that are listed as threatened and then there might be another couple that end up that way soon. So they are threatened by climate change, you know, human impacts, deforestation, feral predators like cats and so on. So we'll definitely be continuing work in that space. That was Associate Professor at QUT, Andrew Baker. Sharks play a vital role in the health of marine ecosystems. As a keystone species, without them, entire ecosystems can collapse. Using data collected between 2012 and 2019, a study published in the journal Science found nearly 18 million sharks a year are killed by humans. Of that number, 25 million were threatened species. The Wires contributor from TuneFM, Ash Taylor, spoke with marine biologist and senior sharks campaigner from the Australian Marine Conservation Society, Dr. Leonardo Guida, about this research. What are the greatest risks to sharks in addition to that? Is it just commercial fishing or is there more? Fishing is the single biggest challenge the sharks and rays face across the world. 
in and amongst that, yeah, you do have um, habitat destruction. So whether that's through you know coastal areas being developed for housing or, or industry, and you also have habitat destruction in the form of, of climate change. So particularly the Great Barrier Reef where you've got corals that are bleaching. But by and large, without a doubt, unequivocally, um, fishing is their single greatest threat. Uh, and that's predominantly from, from commercial fishing. Although I should say, um, and even in Australia, recreational fishing does have an impact. And generally speaking, it is underestimated because the data around that's quite poor. And that's a challenge that, that we're addressing at the moment. But yeah, globally, commercial fishing. And as you touched on, there was a paper that came out just a couple of weeks ago. that gave us a bit of an update. And, you know, between 2012 and 2019, we're looking at a minimum conservative estimate of about 76 to 80 million sharks per year that are being killed. So what can we do to change or update the legislation to better protect sharks in this regard? There's, there's quite a few things that can be done. I'll focus mainly on, mainly on the Australian context because that's what I presume our audience is most familiar with. But firstly, from an international level, so November 2022, all whaler species, hammerhead species and Katara wedgefish species were listed on an international instrument called CITES Appendix 2. What that basically means is that a considerable majority of the shark species that we have in our waters, particularly the coastal species. So when I say whalers, these are your typical looking sharks. These are like your black tip reef sharks, your bronze whalers, your dusky whalers. These species being listed on Appendix 2 come under greater international, I suppose, regulation and a greater number of international scrutiny in the sense that countries now have to prove with these species that when they trade them internationally, their management and their fishing practices aren't coming at the detriment of any one of those species populations. Easier said than done. But when we zoom down at a domestic level, so here in Australia, when we look at laws, we've got our national environment laws. So this is the Environment uh, Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. How do we better educate consumers so that they're aware of this? You know, I, if I go into the shops and I buy something labelled as flake, it, do, it as you said, it just says flake. I don't know mm. what shark species it is or how it's caught. Do we campaign? Do we add stickers? How do we, how do we go about that? Brilliant question, and it's a challenge I've been addressing along with my, my, my colleagues at the Australian Marine Conservation Society. We've been addressing it for the past few years now. So I suppose it's just, just the clarity. When we say flake, flake should only refer to a species of shark, a gummy or rig shark. And these particular sharks are in pretty good numbers. They're, they're not threatened species. But since around the 1920s, flake's been used as a general catch-all term for just shark meat. But yes, you're right. Generally, when you go out, you water flake, you don't know what species you're eating. And we've had a few papers come through in, in the recent years saying that a range of species are caught, including endangered ones. And so as a consumer, fortunately, the Australian Marine Conservation Society has an app called the Good Fish app. So goodfish.org.au. Um, and there's an app that goes with it. And basically, you punch in any particular species you wish to to eat or want to check out there's a traffic light system red yellow green and that's a really great easy way for people to to start talking about it and start to learn more as well you know we're seeing all of these sharks you know disappearing from our waters how is that loss going to affect marine ecosystems oh, yeah i mean I, I can't predict the future obviously but i mean if i had to just give you a one-word answer i'd say devastating and I say that because sharks generally occupy the top of a food web. 
an, as an apex predator. And as such, they keep everything else in check and in balance. And if you take too many sharks out of that role, food webs risk becoming unstable. That instability can ultimately cause collapse, which then ultimately affects the seafood that lands on your plate. And the, the reality is, is a healthy ocean needs its sharks. It, it's that simple, if not just for biodiversity, but as I said, for the very seafood that lands on your plate, if we genuinely want sustainable fisheries into the future and be able to access protein from the sea, then we really need to fish for the future. That was Dr. Leonardo Guida from the Australian Marine Conservation Society, speaking with Tune FM's Ash Taylor. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 3ZZZ, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane, with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. We'll see you next week, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Torval and Jagera countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Eduardo Jordan. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire.